At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 29, The Road to Serfdom. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So in this episode, we're going to examine the influence of the work Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek in reference to the Cold War and our own contemporary period. As always, this episode is not an endorsement of Hayek's ideas, nor is it a critique of them. It's merely an examination of what his argument was and how it affected the Cold War, and in some ways, our own time. It's up to you, the listeners, to decide what to believe about Hayek's thoughts and arguments. Fifteen years ago, I think this episode would have been less relevant. But today, since the financial crisis in 2008, socialism, central planning, and Keynesian economics have made a comeback amongst intellectual and public circles. In a United States poll, some 53% of 18- to 29-year-olds viewed socialism favorably, according to a recent RUP survey in 2016. Hayek today is just as controversial as he was in the late 1940s and the early 1950s. On the left, he is often grouped in with figures like Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand, as a precursor to objectivism and a laissez-faire capitalist. On the right, Hayek is held up as a champion of the free market and a libertarian economist, but how accurate are these caricatures? Those on the right and on the left might be surprised that Hayek favored government-backed insurance programs, the minimum wage, and some form of limited government health care. He also warned against the dangers of war and nationalism. Many see the road to serfdom as a slippery slope argument that government regulation and planning will lead to dictatorship, but that's not what Hayek was arguing. The road to serfdom is a warning about the dangers around the unintended consequences of central planning. The book is actually dedicated to socialists of all parties. Hayek believed that most democratic socialists were good-intentioned people. They just fundamentally misunderstood economics and didn't understand the inherent dangers of central planning. Moreover, Hayek believed that many people that called themselves socialists really didn't understand what they were advocating. Many have believed that socialism is just an endorsement of free education, universal health care, social justice, and a higher minimum wage. While it's true that socialism does embrace these features, it's much more than this and has a dense philosophy behind it. Moreover, in contrast, believing in free higher education, universal health care, social justice, and a higher minimum wage doesn't necessarily make one a socialist. To many textbook socialists or followers of Marx, socialism means the abolition of private enterprise or at the very least, as Lenin explained, the capture of the commanding heights of the economy or the major industries in the nation. Companies like Facebook, Amazon, or GM uh, would all be government-owned. The entrepreneur would be replaced by a central planning committee. 
wealth would be redistributed, and resources would be allocated more efficiently through the economy. Many people who claim to support socialism, I would venture to say, still wouldn't support this type of economic system, despite their support for universal health care or free higher education. Many others might agree that socialism will never be as efficient as capitalism, but argue that socialism will ensure a, a more just world through an equal distribution of wealth. But Hayek asks us, do we really know that to be true? Who will decide who gets what and why? So who was Hayek and what did he believe? Hayek was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1899. He was born into an aristocratic family. His father was a doctor and a botanist who lectured at the University of Vienna. His mother was from a wealthy landowning family. Hayek was the oldest of three brothers who also went on to receive PhDs as well. Indeed, university life was something of a tradition in Hayek's family, as both of his grandfathers had also been doctors and had doctorates in mathematics and economics, respectively. Very early in life, Hayek became a voracious reader with interest in science, genetics, botany, and philosophy. In 1917, Hayek joined an artillery regiment in the Austro-Hungarian army and fought in the Italian front. Much of Hayek's combat experience was spent as a spotter in a plane, actually. Hayek suffered damage to his hearing and his left ear during the war and was decorated for bravery. After the war, he decided to pursue an academic career at the University of Vienna. Hayek earned doctorates in law and political science in 1921 and 1923, respectfully, and also studied philosophy, psychology, and economics. Initially, Hayek was drawn to the ideas of democratic socialism, but the help of Mises came to become a prominent a pr proponent of classical liberalism. When Hayek uses the term liberal, he does not mean liberal in the 21st century American sense, but in the 19th century sense. Classical liberals believed in free trade, the rule of law, and the equality of man under the law. In the 20th century, many liberals, progressives, and socialists sought to build on these rights and extend them to the economic sphere. Some argued for things like a minimum wage and an eight-hour workday. Others argued for more radical changes, such as a redistribution of wealth, and or a centralized economy. Hayek believed that laws should be used to regulate the economy and prevent others from committing crimes against each other. However, as we shall see, he staunchly opposed the nationalization of the economy, central planning, and government laws that impose burdens on its people or force them to make certain economic choices. He did, however, believe in central planning and government control when it came to war and in dealing with natural disasters and a limited social safety net where the free market could not provide reasonable assurances or options. It's also important to note that though today Hayek is seen as a conservative thinker, he didn't consider himself to be a conservative. He considered conservatism as a paternalistic, nationalistic, anti-intellectual, mystical, and a traditional so traditionalist social movement, which could be just as totalitarian as socialism. He contended that conservatism, by its very nature, was a defender of established privilege and attempted to influence government to protect that privilege. Hayek again considered himself to be a classical liberal, believing in a free competitive market, meritocracy, and the equality of all men under the law. Hayek and other classical economists believed that a true socialist economy was impossible to achieve because bureaucrats could never fully contain all of the knowledge of the market. 
They couldn't contain the expertise to coordinate the fishing industry while running an airline and the automobile industry, etc., etc., etc. Moreover, it would be impossible to set pricing in a rational manner as they could had no basis by which to rationally set prices without the market's guidance. This was an issue actually in the Soviet Union, and Soviet officials often just reflected the prices in the West when establishing prices for goods. Classical economists also point out the incentive issue with the socialist economy. No one has an incentive beyond coercion to work harder or innovate because there is no reward for doing so. If anything, it undermines the system. In 1931, Hayek was invited to come teach at the London School of Economics, where it was hoped he would become a counterweight to John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist who was teaching at Cambridge. Well there, the two engaged in a series of debates around British, the British uh, economy and monetary policy. Keynesian economics argues that the economy can be organized and regulated in an intelligent manner through fiscal and monetary policy. Keynes believed it was necessary to balance the interests of the whole community against the animal spirits that were the force behind the markets. With the coming of the Great Depression and the rise of Keynesian economic influence in Britain and America, it was seen by many in academia, economics, and politics that Keynes' ideas had triumphed. As the 1930s came to an end and World War II began, Hayek volunteered to help the British war effort but was turned down by the British government because of his Austrian heritage. It was during this time that he began to write The Road to Serfdom. It's important to remember what the the world looked like when Hayek published The Road to Serfdom. Most of the world economy was centrally planned as a result of the Great Depression and the Second World War. Stalinism, fascism, Nazism, and FDR's New Deal, which was built on Keynesian economics, were seen as the answer to the Depression. These systems were built around a belief in state intervention and control of the economy coupled with an emphasis on large infrastructure projects like the Audubon, the steel mills at Midagrosk, or the Tennessee Valley Authority, although control of the economy and methods varied greatly from country to country. The war only accelerated these trends, and many politicians and officials in both Britain and America believed that the centralized planning and efficiencies of the war could be used to achieve a higher standard of living for millions of people after the war. Millions of more people in both the United States and Europe saw centralized planning and or socialism as a better alternative to the weak capitalist governments of the 1930s and the Great Depression. Millions more in the developing world saw socialism and central planning as the path to modernization and economic prosperity for their own people. Very few people in the world believed in free markets and classical liberal economics by the 1930s. In the aftermath of the Second World War, the British Labour Party was preparing for a massive centralization of the economy and the creation of a welfare state. In both Britain and America, it was felt amongst the intelligentsia that centralized planning and Keynesian economics was the best middle way between the instability and recklessness of free market capitalism and the horrors of totalitarianism. Hayek wrote the book Road to Serfdom through 1943 and was able to get Rutledge to publish the book in Britain. In the United States, three American publishing houses rejected his manuscript before the University of Chicago agreed to publish it. The book was written for a British audience, and beyond a few hundred academic sales, they didn't expect the book to sell well. The book soon, however, became a hit in both Britain and America. 
So what did Hayek say in The Road to Serfdom that was so influential and popular? So if you remember from some of our earlier episodes, there were three prominent theories about what led up to the Second World War and the rise of fascism and subsequently Nazism. The first was a genetic cultural argument that the German people were inherently militaristic and nationalistic. Hence, it was historically inevitable that the Germans would seek world domination. This was a view held in in both uh, the West and the Soviet Union. The second argument was the Marxist argument that fascism was the final stage of reactionary capitalism. They saw fascism as a reactionary dictatorial movement by the bourgeoisie and the capitalists to stop the workers and the people from capturing the means of production and the state. In contrast, in the West, many academics and politicians felt that fascism had come to power due to economic instability, which was the result of the Great Depression and laissez-faire capitalism. They argued that economic instability led to the uh, popularity of fringe political parties, which seized power in Italy and Japan and Germany. These fringe parties uh, pursued radical political agendas, which resulted in the Second World War. Hayek in The Road to Serfdom argues the exact opposite. It wasn't lazy fair capitalism or reactionary government that were the root of cause of the Second World War, but socialism and economic planning. As many have pointed out, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany shared many similarities, and Hayek argued that this was not by chance. Both the Third Reich and the Soviet Union were based on the premise of a planned economy, thus the growth of a totalitarian regime was the logical outcome. Hayek also pointed out the fact that the founders of of fascist Italy, Mussolini, had been a leading Marxist before the 1920s. In the 1930s, many Germans easily floated between the Nazi and communist parties, and as we saw in episode 20, many ex-Nazis went on to join the communist party in East Germany. Hayek argued that the fierce fighting between the Nazis and communists in the 1930s, or the Italian fascists and the communists in the early 1920s, wasn't because they were radically opposed, but because they were fighting for the same base of supporters, the lower middle class and workers. To the Nazis, a German communist was a better recruit than a classical liberal. A communist, though he believed in the wrong ideology, wouldn't question orders. He would be willing to sacrifice himself to the cause unselfishly and would be be unwilling to compromise with individual liberty and democracy. Moreover, Hayek points out that Marx and Engels never took into consideration the middle class and the proletariat or industrial workers. By the turn of the century, the middle class of clerks, typists, administrative workers, and teachers – Mussolini himself was a history teacher – had grown dramatically since the 1860s when Marx wrote Das Kapital. For a time, this class provided the leadership of the socialist movement. But as it became clear that this class's position was deteriorating in reaction to that of the individual workers, the ideals of Marxism lost much of their appeal. However, they retained their belief in party discipline and central planning, hence Nazism and fascism were a middle-class socialism in a way. In Germany, Hayek argued that central planning had grown out of both the conservative and socialist movements. Hence, the symbiosis of of nationalism and socialism in the Nazi party. Both had agreed on the need for a centrally planned economy and, by extension, a centrally planned society. Central planning, Hayek argued, dated back to the days of Bismarck and the strict discipline of the Prussian state, which had forged Germany into a nation from the 1860s to 1871. 
In Germany, working for the state was a very prestigious, and many Germans studied hard to become state employees, versus those Germans who pursued careers in the private sector who were seen as either losers or at best greedy and selfish in some respects if they became successful businessmen, versus, say, the culture in the United States or Britain, where most men wanted careers in the private sector and and entrepreneurs were looked up to. Culturally, Hayek contends the average German is industrious, disciplined, thorough, and energetic. They have a degree of single-mindedness in any task they undertake. They possess a strong sense of order, duty, and a strict obedience to authority with a great willingness to make personal sacrifice. But Germans in general, according to Hayek, lack tolerance and respect for individual opinions, and made, which made them more susceptible to dictatorship than, say, the British or Americans. He also argued that Hitler didn't destroy democracy in Germany. It was already in a terminal state of decline. Everyone thought the Weimar Republic was broken, and Hindenburg already had dictatorial powers. Germany had a long tradition on both the right and left of despising liberals in democracy, which is why the Weimar Weimar Republic was bound to fail, according to Hayek. Hitler, like Caesar in the late Roman Republic, took advantage of the situation. Everyone was already looking for a strong man and a new form of government. Many politicians, capitalists, uh, backed Hitler even though they detested him because they felt that he was the only one strong enough to get things done. Therefore, to Hayek, democracy is a utilitarian device for safeguarding peace and individual freedom. It is by no means infallible or certain, nor are democracies and the majorities always just. The United States subjected innocent Japanese-Americans to internment camps. The rule of law is essential to democracies as it can guard the rights of minorities and individuals from the actions of the often hasty decisions of the majority. It is not the source but the limitation of power and Hayek's view which prevents it from being arbitrary. Hayek believed that man is only truly free if he needs to obey no person but slowly the laws. So long as all the actions of the state are duly authorized by legislation, the rule of law will be preserved. In Hayek's view, central planning erodes away the legal frameworks of a nation because as planning becomes more and more complex and the law is changed to meet the plan, what is fair and reasonable is left more and more in the hands of judges or state planners. Planning naturally involves deliberate discrimination between popular needs of different groups and people. Naturally, many, if not most, of these decisions will be subjective. Thus, Hayek warned against the unintended consequences of a planned economy. He argued that centralized planning of the economy would inevitably lead to the collectivism of the society to achieve the state's economic plans. Naturally, naturally, there would be those who would refuse to go along with the government's plan, and the government would certainly use violence and coercion against these people to compel them to follow the plan. Beyond this, people not only have to follow the plan, they must believe in the plan. For a totalitarian system to function efficiently, it is not enough to force everyone to work to the same ends. It is essential that they are personally invested in achieving these ends. Although these beliefs must be chosen for the people and imposed upon them, they must become their beliefs, a general accepted creed that will ensure that the individuals will act spontaneously in the ways the planners want. This naturally requires propaganda on the part of the state. 
a myth needs to be created to justify the leader's actions, even when those actions contradict each other, especially as they oft, often are making decisions as events are happening uh, or events happening acting on political instinct. The planning authority will constantly have to make decisions on issues where there exists no strong moral rules or public opinions, and it will have to justify its decisions to the people. Often, propaganda will try to persuade people that the new values of the state is the state is professing are the same values the society has held all along. The people are made to transfer their allegiance from the old values to the new under the pretense that the new values are instinctive and have always been in place. Propaganda destroys the morals and values of society because they eat away at truth, weakening the legal system and the democratic nature of society. Propaganda distorts reality to have it fit into the needs of the planners. In a free society, no one ethic code reigns supreme, whereas in a dictatorship, the ethical code of the ruling elite will suffer no rivals. Communist parties existed in Western democracies, whereas democratic parties and capitalists didn't openly exist in communist countries. Facts and truth become relative, like values. Everything becomes political. Hence, the whole apparatus of spreading knowledge, TV, radio, movies, schools, universities, will be used exclusively to spread the values of the planners, whether they be true or false. Any information that might cause doubt or hesitation in the plan will be withheld. The probable effect on the people's loyalty to the state becomes the only criteria for publishing or suppressing a piece of information. The social sciences suffer especially in totalitarian regimes. History, law, and economics can no longer be devoted to the study of the truth, but must reinforce the state myth. Both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union rejected Einstein's theory of relativity because it didn't fit their ideologies. In the Soviet Union, certain types of statistics were attacked as they were deemed too bourgeois. Science for science's sake and art for art's sake were equally abhorrent to both the Nazis and Soviets. Every activity must derive its justification from a conscious social purpose because the search for truth might produce results which can't be foreseen and might be contradictory to the plan. I want to take a quick break here, and I want to thank Stephen Hazel, uh, Daniel, and John Madmen uh, for contributing to the show. I know a lot of you have said that you enjoy the diverse and wide approach we're taking with the podcast, like looking at the Cold War in Scandinavia or some of the forgotten aspects like the war in Malaya. And we have some great shows coming up in the next six months, like uh, looking at the French war in Indochina, Stalin's empire, uh, where we're going to be taking a deeper look at what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. And finally, we're going to tackle the Middle East and the early Cold War. Without your financial and motivational support, it won't be possible to keep this show going. I love hearing about how much you guys love the show, and it keeps me motivated to do the research and to push out these episodes. Uh, but we honestly need financial support as well. Hosting the podcast and the website all cost money, as does the books and supplies to make the show. We appreciate any donation, no matter how small, but we ask that if you really enjoy the show and are a regular listener, that you make a monthly contribution of $5 through Patreon on our website. So if you want to contribute, uh, contact, contact us or follow us on social media, uh, go to the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Now back to the show. As Trotsky said, quote, in a country where the sole employer is the state, opposition means death. 
by slow starvation. The old principle, who does not work shall not eat, has been replaced by the, a new one, who does not obey shall not eat. Fundamentally, Hayek believed that socialism and democracy were diametrically opposed. Democracy extends the sphere of individual freedom. Socialism, in contrast, constricts it. Democracy attaches great value to each individual, whereas in socialism, makes each man a mere number. Socialism made individuals trade their personal liberties in exchange for economic security, which often never materialized. Hayek believed that the free market allowed individuals to pursue their own dreams and occupations in life. In socialist nations, your fate might be decided after a few tests and you would be placed in a job, but capitalist, capitalism allows you to the ch that chance to try to become a rock, a rock star, start your own business, or even run a podcast. Hayek saw Nazism as sort of like a counter-Renaissance. The Nazis wished to destroy the ideals of the Enlightenment, rationalism, and the right and civil liberties of man. They sought to return Europe to mysticism, folk tradition, collectivism, and slavery. The ideals of liberty and individuality dated back to antiquity with the ancient Greeks, Romans, and Christians. These ideas were reborn in northern Italy during the Renaissance and spread to the rest of Western Europe. The reign of these ideas with Britain and America reached its peak in 1870, according to Hayek. Uh, from that point on, the ideals of freedom were slowly eroded and pushed back. England lost her place as the world intellectual capital, and Germany became the center of the philosophical world. Hegel, Marx, Weber all called Germany home, and all of these thinkers emphasized central planning. German thinkers, scientists, and engineers became the envy of the world, and technologically and scientifically, Germany became the most advanced nation until the 1940s. During this time, Hayek argues Britain and America lost faith in their own ideals. Beliefs around individuality by some came to be seen as selfish. Free trade was despised as, by many as an in invention for, to further British economic interest, whereas others argued that democracy and the free market were outmoded and inefficient. Today, we still have critiques of democracy and the free market uh, by those like Thomas Friedman, who is a big proponent of the centralized command economy of contemporary China. Many people then and now doubt the efficiency of a democratic government. People on the left and right, especially here in the United States, believe that Washington is ineffective. They can't seem to accomplish anything, even when one party controls all three branches of the government. You hear people say the system is broken, and hence the cries by some for a new type of government or a stronger leader to achieve change. Hayek observes that these people don't think to stop uh, that Congress is examining complex problems which no majority of people share common agreement, especially in a nation of 300 million. Hayek believed that history didn't repeat, but we could learn from the past to avoid the repetition of the same process. Hayek had experienced a similar intellectual zeitgeist or milieu in Austria and Germany in the 1920s where socialism and central planning had advanced quicker in the German-speaking world versus that of the English-speaking world. So he experienced a sort of deja vu in Britain and America during the late 1940s when we all know what happened, uh, what Germany developed into during the 1930s, and Hayek's fear is that a similar process might happen in Britain and America. Hayek warned that central planning and a master plan for the economy to generate economic growth sounds great in theory, but in reality, having a master plan will obviously advantage some over others. For example, 
why should nurses make more than teachers or vice versa? Some government planner would have to make the decision about how resources were allocated, and ultimately, they would have to base these decisions off of some set of values. As populations become more educated and intelligent, it becomes more difficult for them to agree on a hierarchy of shared values. In contrast to a less educated population, which has uh, more shared common beliefs and thus are more easily manipulated. Hence the reason why dictators and demagogues deal in simple narratives. Moreover, unfortunately, history has shown us it's always easier to forge people together around hatred of the other by, be they immigrants, Jews, or the rich, versus bringing to people together. Nationalism is another strong force that is manipulated on, on the behalf of those who wish to enforce collectivism, be it they on the right or left. Nationalism allows them to convince people to sacrifice to achieve a national plan. Stalin, despite his belief in socialism, used Russian nationalism to secure his position in the Soviet Union, despite communist belief in the brotherhood of man. Often people will only surrender their individuality and identity and identify with a group if it confers some type of privilege or superiority to others. Moreover, as we spoke about earlier, the planners would lack all of the knowledge that is contained in the economy, and they would have to decide which industries should be favored over others. Even without a socialist-run economy here in America, many people are bitterly divided over government investments in coal power versus renewable energy. Hayek would contend it would be best for the government not to intervene and allow coal and renewable energies to compete in the open market. As a point of clarification, though, Hayek did believe that if businesses like coal represented a health risk to the community, it would be regulated and penalized by the government. Even if a democracy, according to Hayek, could succeed in planning every sector of the economy to the satisfaction of most citizens, it would still face the problem of integrating these separate plans into a unitary whole. Many separate plans do not make a whole. Moreover, as the coercive power of the state alone will decide who is to have what, the only power worth having will be the, in directing the state. There will be no economic or social question that would not be a political question in the sense that their solution will depend almost exclusively on who wields the coercive power of the state. Naturally, this type of system, Hayek argues, will attract the worst type of people to rise to the top, like Stalin, Mao, or Pol Pot. Only those ruthless enough to let no one stand in their way of implementing the plan will rise to the top of the organization. Moreover, given the fact that power is concentrated in these small committees, it's naturally easier for one figure to take over versus democracy with its distributed power structure. Hayek did emphasize that for competition to work strong, effectively, a strong legal framework had to be in place, stopping those businesses who took advantage of consumerism, consumers and in blocking the formation of monopolies. He also believed in some situations where competitive markets didn't exist, the government would have to step in. Hayek believed it was fine for the state to provide a social safety net and economic security for individuals from sickness, old age, or unemployment, but that the free market and, and competition needed to be, not be sacrificed to achieve these ends. Hayek was also opposed to those on the right that sought to replace competition through corporate monopolies. He knew that this would put consumers at the mercy of the corporations, where the planned economy would be left in the hands of a few corporate boards, 
as opposed to the state. But in 1943, he saw state planning as a greater danger to democracy. Hayek also believed that corporate estates or monopolies were less dangerous than the centralized power of the state. Power into monopolies would still be dispersed throughout the various corporations, and they could still be overcome via technological changes that could change the market or government intervention. Once the state took over, however, through centralized planning, Hayek argued it was very difficult, if not impossible, for the people to, to wrest back their liberties. Moreover, Hayek warned against the false narrative that the economy has become so complex that centralized planning has become necessary or that competition is outmoded by technological development. Nor did he accept the false binary that our only choice was the control of the economy by either the state or by private monopolies. Hayek likewise warned about the prolonged effects of war. Hayek believed at times war was necessary, but that prolonged or protracted conflicts produced a danger to civil liberties as a result of wartime needs and centralized planning and centralized authority, which resulted from war. During times of war, leaders can ask their people to endure hardships and to make sacrifices they wouldn't ordinarily make. Therefore, he warned against savvy politicians who would invoke the imagery and rhetoric of war, such as the war on terror, or drugs, or poverty, all wars with no definitive enemy or end. Hayek warned that politicians and bureaucracies like to use these circumstances to grow their power and influence over society and the economy. Moreover, once the government took such rights, privileges, or powers, they would rarely surrender them after the emergency. Ultimately, Hayek did agree that the market was not fair and that it may seem arbitrary at times, but it was far preferable to the centralized alternative. The road to serfdom was a huge hit in 1944 in both Britain and America. Since 1944, the University of Chicago has sold an estimated 350,000 copies, with hundreds of thousands more being published overseas. Unfortunately, there is no good count of the worldwide publication as thousands of secret copies were printed and smuggled throughout the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union, and China. The initial 2,000 copies in March 1944 printed in Britain were quickly sold out, as was a second printing of 2,500. In September, the American edition came out with 2,000 copies, and it was quickly sold out, and a second and third printing had to be ordered. By the end of the month, 17,000 copies had been sold. Hayek was sent quickly on a five-week trip to the United States to promote this, his book. Initially, his agents had envisioned him speaking at a series of universities, but by the time he arrived, a number of public venues had been added to the stops. The town club in New York City attracted some 3,000 listeners, and he was broadcast over the radio. Hayek was initially overwhelmed with speaking in front of so many people, but he quickly adjusted. He was, however, uh, quickly embarrassed and a tad annoyed as people were not reading his work but judging it on what they had heard from others. Or worse, yet they had read the 20-page condensed cartoon edition, which was published by Look Magazine in February 1945. Reader's Digest had also printed a condensed version, which thousands had read. He was particularly worried that many people were misrepresenting what he was trying to say. Intellectual reaction to Hayek's work was mixed. John Maynard Keynes said of it, quote, In my opinion, it's, it is a grand book, morally and philosophically. I find myself in agreement with virtually the whole of it, and not only in agreement with it, but in deeply moved agreement, close quote. 
Nevertheless, Keynes didn't think Hayek's ideals on economics were practical and that people with strong democratic traditions could institute planned economies without the danger of becoming dictatorships. Hayek did, however, address this critique in The Road to Serfdom. He argued that those government controls and central planning may not have an effect on the traditions of a democratic people in the short term, but they would in the long term. He argued that in one or two generations, government control would slowly eat away at democratic traditions. George Orwell had mixed emotions about the work, stating, quote, In the negative part of Professor Hayek's thesis, there is a great deal of truth. It can't be said too often, at any rate, it is not being said it nearly enough, that collectivism is not inherently democratic, but on the contrary, gives to a tyrannical minority such powers as the Spanish inquis inquisitors never dreamt. Yet he also warned, quote, a return to free competition means for the great mass of people a tyranny probably worse because more, of, more irresponsible than that of the state, close quote. The American intellectual elite hated the work, and many said it was, quote, undemocratic, sinister, and offensive, close quote. Said one, quote, Hayek's call for constitutionalism and advocacy of the rule of law was indicative of his anti-democratic biases, close quote. Many historians legitimately questioned his argument about the rise of Nazism in Germany. These historians argued that Hayek was simplifying circumstances too greatly and that the Nazi party had originated in Bavaria, not Prussia, and that the Nazi party did not gain popularity until the depression and the rise of hyperinflation in Germany. Many others subsequently criticized the road to serfdom because it provided no answer as to how to overcome the depression and organize the economy versus the central planning and nationalization of the Keynesian economics. Although Hayek would respond to these criticisms in a later work, most notably the Constitution of Liberty in 1960. Another criticism is that it failed to address market socialism or the Scandinavian economies, who seemed to combine the best aspects of the free market and egalitarian policies while promoting social justice with a democratic system. Supporters of Hayek, however, would contend that these nations were not the dangers he was warning of, but nations like Venezuela and Cuba. Whenever government control of the market and nationalization of businesses crowded out the free market, dictatorship was soon to follow. Despite the Scandinavians having a welfare state, a significant portion of their economy is still private. On the right, some criticized him for not taking a stronger line against the Soviet Union. And he did cite in that as one of his regrets about writing the book. Nevertheless, to be fair, the Soviet Union at the time was a wartime ally, and he does cite the Soviet Union on a number of occasions throughout the work. While in America, Hayek met Harold Lunhau, uh, an American businessman out of Kansas City, who was interested in funding ideas around the free market. This project would help to create the Chicago School of Economics and the Mount Purulin Society an international society of scholars founded by Hayek and supported by American businessmen whose goal was to champion the ideals of classical liberalism. This conference was important because it showed free market economists that though the, they, they were not alone, despite being a very small group of the economist profession. A few years later, Hayek would immigrate from London to the University of Chicago, where he would teach. As Lunau agree, agreed to fund Hayek's salary at the University of Chicago for 10 years. 
Hayek's ideas and those of other classical liberals like Milton Friedman would play a critical role in the late Cold War during the late 1970s and 1980s. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan modeled much of their economic policies off of Hayek's beliefs, fundamentally changing the world economy as Keynesian economics and central planning went into decline. Even Russia in the years following the fall of the Soviet Union would adopt free market principles. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. Stay tuned for our next show on July the 1st as we examine the late French Empire and the French Empire's role in the early Cold War. If you enjoyed this show or any of our past episodes, please feel free to share the episode on social media or tell your friends about us. Don't have a lot of friends in the history and you still want to help us? Give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Don't forget to visit the website to follow us on social media uh, or for all of our latest Cold War content and show updates. If you want to financially support what we're doing here, consider becoming a, pa- a Patreon supporter and pledging a few dollars a month. Your donations go a long way in keeping us on the air. As always, while on the website, feel free to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.